Romans chapter 3, we're going to be spending our time here this morning. As Brent said, our title is But Now. But Now. And hopefully as we go through this, um, you'll see why we call it that. Thank you for being here. This, this may be one of the most important lessons that I could bring. Um, all of the scriptures God breathed. There is no place that we could just go and just open the Bible anywhere and not glean something from it that God would be speaking to us. But uh, some of the stuff we're going to share this morning is uh, so crucial, so important for us to understand. So um, let's just ask the Lord to open our, our eyes and our hearts and our minds and truly, truly learn from him this morning. Let's, let's bow. Our God and our Father, we come before you again. Father, we are, are so grateful to, to be here, to have experienced what we've already experienced, gathering around your table, remembering the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us, uh, the singing of songs, Bowing in prayer, Father, we, we are so blessed. And I ask now, Father, that you open our hearts, that you open our eyes, that you open our ears and our minds. Holy Spirit, allow us to understand that which we will read this morning. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at our text, Romans chapter 3. But now, these are the words that mark a, a, a great transition in the letter of Romans. And what a difference these two words are going to make. Then, before this statement, but now, then we were under God's wrath. That's chapter 1. We were spiritually dead and depraved. We were proven guilty in ourselves, and we were in need of salvation by faith. But now, now, we are under God's grace. We're spiritually alive forevermore. We are declared righteous in Christ. We are forgiven by his blood, and we are provided with salvation by faith. What a contrast between then and now. But now begins to examine the great truths that form the very heart of the gospel. That's why this message is so important. So I want us to look at the context of this, of this great passage. The context of this great transition is that Paul has just spent the first uh, two and a half chapters of Romans showing that all mankind stands condemned by sin. From uh, the Gentile idol worshipers, uh, to the churchgoers, to the very religious, all are sinners and in need of salvation. And so Paul's conclusion of that lengthy section is that all are under sin. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. Not even one. Not even one. 
This is what the Holy Spirit says about all mankind. All are under sin, all of us. But now, but now, Paul seems to say, uh, since it has now been sufficiently established that everyone needs to hear the gospel, everyone needs to respond to the gospel, let's spell out the basics of this good news and tell how we can receive the benefits of it. That's what he's going to do. So, in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul presents really an essential um, theological statement uh, of the gospel that God has provided through his son. It's, it's sort of a difficult text, and I want us to work our way through it a little this morning. We'll, we'll go slowly. Concerning the gospel, uh, Paul conveys three main truths uh, to help us grasp it. First, the first great truth that I want us to see here, it is, it's a transfer of righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth is, is that if you wish fellowship with God and you want to be saved for all eternity, you must be righteous. Did you know that? If you want to be saved, if you want to have a relationship with God, you must be righteous. Now, there are two ways that that can happen. First, you are righteous because you never, ever sin. You never, ever do anything wrong. And by virtue of you not sinning, you're righteous. Guess what? Nobody, nobody falls in that category. Zero. As we just read, there is none righteous, no, not one. So that doesn't seem to be an option, does it? The second option is, is that you can just receive the righteousness that God gives you. You just receive it. You see, it's either by your merit or it's by God's merit. But you have to be righteous. And in brief, the gospel is a transfer of righteousness from God's heart to our lives. Now in these verses, I want us uh, to notice a, f a few things about this thing, it being a transfer of righteousness. First of all, it is not legal. Now but by that, I'm not saying it's illegal. I'm just saying it's not a legal transaction. Listen to what he says. A right standing comes... Uh, before God comes apart from the law. It's apart from the law. Keeping the law cannot achieve or earn us the righteousness of God. God never intended it to do so. 
Now, even if you could keep all of the law, which you don't, but even if you could, God established that the righteousness of God can only come through faith, not works. It can only come through faith. Therefore, righteousness cannot be earned. So first of all, it's not a legal transaction. Secondly, it's not new. It's not a new thing. He says, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What is he saying there? That's a phrase used by the Jews to designate really the, the entire Old Testament. When he says, witnessed to by the law and the prophets, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament. And the message there was basically that, that a man can be right with God. He can be right with God. Genesis chapter 15. Um, we talked about this in Bible class a little bit this morning. Abraham believed what God had said about making him a great nation. He trusted what God said to him. And the text says, And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. God came to a man named Abram, changed his name later to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, through your seed, ultimately he was talking about who? Jesus. When in doubt, always say Jesus, okay? That'll, you'll, you'll get the answer right in church more times than not. So when in doubt, say Jesus. The promise came to Abraham and to his seed. Not many seeds, meaning many, but one seed, which is Christ Jesus. So all nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And when God told Abraham, Abraham believed in God. He trusted what God said. And God reckoned, God credited his belief as righteousness. He trusted the Lord. Psalm chapter 32. David says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So the idea of being saved was not new with Jesus. It was manifested even back in the Old Testament. So let me, let me just point out, Something about that last passage. Did you see what it says there when it says, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity? What that means is, is that God simply will not consider sin against a saved person. God simply will not consider sin. Sin against a saved person. Are you saved? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as Lord and Savior? Have you been buried with him in baptism to have your sins washed away? If you have, the Bible says that God will not consider Sin against you. He won't count it against you. Do, you. do you believe that? 
It's awful quiet in here this morning. Folks, that's why, that's why the gospel is called good news. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You see, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. But we are so blessed by being in Christ because God is not going to even consider sin against us. Wow. I don't know if I believe it, preacher. It's not original with man. This transfer of of righteousness is not original. Verse 27, even the righteousness, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whose righteousness is it? It's God's righteousness. People are not righteous by nature. You know, sometimes we we say things like, well, you know, I I just believe people are basically good. You know, people are just basically good. There's a a few bad apples in the world, but, but for the most part, people are just basically good. You know what? That ain't right. It's not true. People are not righteous by nature. There is none righteous. No, not one. You can't catch righteousness from your mama, from your grandparents, because you go to church. You can't get it from your profession. The only way a person can obtain God's righteousness is if God gives it to you. Paul's going to spend almost the entire book of Romans proving just that point. Man can do nothing to earn or deserve God's righteousness. But with righteousness comes justification which in Greek is really the, the same word as righteousness. Sometimes they translate it justification. Sometimes it's translated righteousness. It's, it's the exact same word. And I love this. Um, an old professor that I had teaching the book of Romans said, I, I want you to think about being justified just as if I'd never sinned. Isn't that beautiful? To be justified in the eyes of God It's to stand before him just as if I'd never sinned, pure, holy. The word means to be declared right. In the New Testament, it means that God declares a believing sinner to be righteous, even though he's not. When a sinner is justified by God... uh, God doesn't, you know, fake himself out as if he's somehow put blinders on and said, well, I just can't see Rodney's sin. You know, I just, I, I'm just going to act like he's not a sinner. That's not what happens. God is not oblivious to our sin. But he gives us his righteousness through Jesus. 
And that's done because somebody paid the price for our sins. Once the price is paid, once the penalty is paid, then God can erase the guilt. He then declares them righteous based upon someone else's merit, not their own. And that man's name is Jesus. You are declared righteous because of what he has done. Not not what you've done. All right, secondly, it's a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. Verse 24, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This idea is that we're justified without payment. There's nothing in us, nothing that we could do that would make us deserving of salvation. But the good news is that God is willing to declare us righteous when, even though we're not, when we were still sinners. Look at Romans 5a. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Why would God do such a thing? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That's why he did it. While we were still sinners. And because he loves us, he chooses to do it. He's God. He can do whatever he chooses. But he is always right and just in what he chooses to do. That's why it required the death of Jesus. Sin demands a price. The wages of sin is death. Sin demands a price. From the very beginning, all the way back to the garden, God said, if you eat of the fruit, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I command you not to eat of, The day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And that's ultimately what happened. A spiritual death and ultimately a physical death. There has to be a price for sin. And God says the price for sin is death. It had to be paid. If God simply overlooked sin, if God simply said, "Um, I'm I'm just going to, you know, cover my eyes and act like it didn't happen. He would not be just. God can't just slough it off and say that it doesn't matter. Because if he did, he would no longer be just. That's why in our text, in chapter 324, it says, yes, it's a gift by his grace, but it's through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There was a price to be paid for it to be right. And God loved us enough to pay the price. Jesus loved us enough to pay the price. When Jesus forgave the thief on the cross, 
he was paying right then for the right to be able to forgive him. Redemption, it means to purchase release by the payment of a price. The term was mostly used in the context of a Roman slave market where people would be placed naked on a slave block to be sold to the highest bidder. The almighty God entered the slave market of sin and purchased our freedom. Mm. What did it cost him? The blood of his only begotten son. You know, I've got... I have children that I love more than anything in the world. And there is not one person in this room this morning that I would give my child to save. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just being honest with you. I love you guys, and and I'm growing to love you more every day. But I don't know of anybody in this room that I would give my child to die for. But God loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, would not have to die that death. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the death blow that I deserved. He died the death that you should have died. Man, I cannot wrap my mind around a God who would give his only son for me. God loves us even when we don't love him. It's a display of love. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. First, he says that, The Father's justice was satisfied. That's what propitiation means. It means satisfaction. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, God gives his son, and he becomes a propitiation, a satisfaction. What was it that satisfied the justice that God required? It was his blood. His blood that satisfied it. It's what we celebrate this morning as we gather around the table. God had declared from the beginning of time that if man sinned, the punishment would be death. And yet God had forgiven millions and millions of people since then. 
How could he do that? Because he paid the price to do it. He paid with his blood in Jesus to do it. See, when God forgave King David for committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he sent her husband to the front lines, Uriah the Hittite, sent him to the front lines so he could be killed to to cover up all of this. When God forgave David of that sin, it looked like God was going to violate his own law. How could God do that? Was God unjust? No. Because Jesus' death demonstrated that. Jesus' death paid the price for what happened in the life of King David. But not only that, Jesus' death also satisfied the Father's wounded heart. Look at Genesis. That's what sin does to God. It, it, It breaks his heart. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. That was then. But now. But now his grief over human sin has finally been relieved. It has been satisfied. Peace has been made through the blood of Jesus on the cross. You see, folks, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I know it sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? That we all sin. We've all uh, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve to die. And God would punish sin. And yet, he punished himself instead. He took our sins upon himself. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin. For us, that's Jesus. He took the beating we deserved, the death stroke that was ours. He forgave the thief on the cross. He forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery. He knew what it would cost him. Jesus did not go into it blindly, he knew the price that he would have to pay. And it was so terrible. That price, that price that he was going to have to pay was so terrible that in the end, he said, Father, if there is any way, if there's any possible way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will. Not my will. Thine be done. He hung there on the cross, dying, praying to the Father, forgive them. (laughs) Who does that? His dying words on the cross were for forgiveness of his enemies. Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Forgiveness for his enemies. His enemies. You know who that is? That's you and me. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He forgave you and he forgave me for our lies, our lust, our adultery, our jealousies, our impatience, our unkindness. Now I can come before the throne of God. The Hebrew writer calls it the throne of grace. And I can seek forgiveness for my sins. Somebody might even protest and say, Rodney is a sinner. He deserves death. He deserves to die. That's what the law demands. And God says, yes, you're right. He does. He does. He does. He deserves to die. And Jesus comes to the Father and he said, I paid the price. He's one of mine. And God looks at me and he says, justified. Rodney is justified. And I can stand in the presence of of God the Father, I can come before his throne with boldness just as if I had never sinned. That's amazing grace, Brent. Amazing love. How could it be that you, my king, would die for me? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, when you sin and you will, God doesn't count it against you. You stand before God just as if you'd never sinned. That's why the gospel is so sweet. That's why we call it the good news. I, years ago, I was a youth minister in, in Opelika, Alabama. And one of the kids in my youth group, uh, her dad loved to go fishing. And, and I said, I like to fish. And he said, I'll take you sometime. So we worked it out. We went out. He took me out to Lake Eufaula. And uh, we were fishing for crappie. And this guy, I mean, he was a fisherman. He knew he knew where the fish were. He had his fish finder on, and he knew where all the, the sunken um, cedar trees and things were, where those crappie liked to hang out. He had these little buoys made out of a old uh, oil, um, plastic cord of oil with um, string tied around it and a weight. And we got to a certain spot. He said, throw, throw it out right there. And I threw it out, and the line would unwind, and that would just kind of float. And we put them all around the boat, and then we started fishing. We were fishing with minnows, live bait. I was catching four, five, six fish on the same minnow. I mean, by the time I'd caught four or five, that little minnow was just, you know, just dead. You know, there was no wiggle left in him at all. But, I, I mean, it's like every cast we were catching fish. We probably caught 60 or 70 crappie, just the two of us, in just a few hours' time. I mean, I was loving it. But we, 
we started talking about spiritual things, and John said, Rodney, he said, are you telling me that God will just forgive you for anything and everything you've ever done? And I said, yes, John, that's, if I read my Bible right, that's what it says. He said, I've just, I've just done terrible things. I have been so bad. He said, I have, I have just done terrible things. And I started looking around, and I'm standing in the boat out in the middle of Lake Eufaula, and I'm thinking to myself, what kind of terrible things has John done? He keeps talking about all these terrible things he's done. I said, John, if it weren't true, it would sound too good to be true. It really would. But I'm telling you, I'm banking my whole life on it, that it's true. That no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, if you're in Christ, God won't count it against you. Just as if I'd never sinned. Now, we don't have time to talk about... um, what we do with that grace, sometimes we misappropriate it, I think, but there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. You say, how do I know? How do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I do that? I want to do it. How do I know? Look at Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. And then it says this, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. That's how you know. That's how you know if you're there. I'm telling you, it is wonderful to consider your sins and the sadness and the unhappiness of being lost and then saying, but now. But now. That's what I used to be. But now. I used to have all of these sins, but now, because of Jesus, I can stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. He's calling for you and for me. Why do we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Won't you come home this morning?